Good morning, afternoon, and or evening, depending on when you are listening to this. I am Steve. And I'm Pat. We're here to bring you in-depth analysis and discussion around everything to do with real estate and home loans. So grab yourself a cup of something that makes you happy, or keep your hands on the wheels and enjoy. All right, and we are back for another episode of Burn the Curtain with Steve Bryan and Pat Lindgren. There he is. All right, so we um, we got together. We were just planning out, like, before I even was ready to start recording, I was setting up all the microphones, and Pat and I just started chatting about what he is seeing with people online, you know, um, and I'm going to let him chat a little bit about what he's seeing, and we'll go from there. So one of the things that we're kind of talking about is the the new the new way that uh, you know a good chunk of the the purchase power is coming from the the millennial generation, um, which which being a millennial myself, instant gratification, um, you know, want, wanting an answer quickly, um, but also empowered to do to do our own research in a lot of ways. So what we're seeing a lot of now is, is people, you know, stopping online first and trying to gather as much information and then sending out like, well, this is what I found. What are, you know, what can you do and how does this compare? And then actually reaching out and starting the process of, you know, either getting pre-approved or jumping right in and trying to look at homes. And it's uh, it becomes a a speed game more so than an accuracy game in, in some in some cases and that's just that's kind of a, a market that that we play and live in especially in such a hot real estate market in portland right and when you say speed versus accuracy what do you mean by that well, well taking the time to get pre-approved and really understand everything that goes into the loan process on on our side of the fence and this is where you know we we pride ourselves on like we want to issue the most accurate information rather than you know putting somebody in in a car for you as an agent you know and saying like hey great go you know and they stop online and and fill out an application and it spits out an automatic pre-approval right and like okay hey i've been pre-approved uh, but wait there's more wait are you talking about like they do an online application through you guys at do good or through rocket mortgage or through something? like an online lender not so much us we have a, a great online platform but i mean by and large using um you know online lenders that have that have great technology and and quite frankly like sometimes i'm a little jealous of the technology ours is very very good um but we're not you know we're not backed by you know hedge funds in some cases and um and, and have all the money in the world to invest in technology but some of that technology eliminates the i don't want to say humanity but the human touch of it and understanding that everybody's situation is very different so what's put in doesn't always spit out the most accurate information to prepare somebody for a process of a home ownership or just getting into the process of pre-qualifying or the process of looking at a price range that is appropriate for them to be looking in. Um, and just because you pre-qualify for something, whether it's accurate or not, uh, that may not be something that you're even interested in spending that much on a home, right? And the technology isn't quite there in from an intuitive process of being able to ask 
all the pertinent questions other than just the black and white questions and the financial questions um, and then spitting out you know a generic pre-approval that puts somebody in your vehicle that puts somebody in the in in the hands of a professional an agent that's saying like okay hey you're pre-approved up to this let's go look at houses and from there you know do you even understand what the payment is, what the real estate taxes are, how the homeowner's insurance works, if there's mortgage insurance on a loan, you know, there's risk-based pricing, even though it pulls credit, it spits out a quote, and that rate could be good at that time, but it might not be good in 24 hours. And do you understand that that's how this works? And there's just a, such a slew of things that, that can happen. And the excitement, I think you can probably attest to this, is like the cool part's looking at houses. Yeah. I mean, kind of jumping into this when I'm working with a new client and they say we want to go look at a house I always tell them you need to talk to Pat first we talk a little depending on whether the client wants to share how much money they make a year I at this point through working with you have a fairly good idea of a ballpark of where people will be able to buy based on how much they make I'll ask them a little bit how much they debt they owe like I don't want to get into too much of that because it's not frankly none of my business and the person who really need, they need to be having a conversation with you and getting into all the details of every debt they own, every asset that they have, and figuring out that debt to income ratio, not only finding out how much they can qualify for, but what they're comfortable with. Because I've been seeing a lot of people come to me lately where they're like, uh, we're, we're hoping we might be able to qualify for 400 after they talk to you, you come back to me and you're like, they can go up to 650, 700. Then I have a conversation with them, you know, like, let's talk about how much down you have. You know, like if you're buying a $700,000 house and you're only putting 10% down, I mean, that would work with the new Jumbo loan. New Jumbo loan limit, in that case, yes, it would. And it could, to dovetail off our last one that was a little bit behind coming out. Yeah, so the new Jumbo loan limit is $647,200. And that's a loan amount. Um, and that's the conforming limit for the, you know, for the nation, there are high balance areas. There are no high balance areas in the state of Oregon. So for all our Oregonian friends out there, that's going to be the conforming loan limit. Okay. Cause I always tell people, you know, the general rule of thumb, I tell people if they're trying to figure out their monthly payment without asking you to run their numbers on every single house that they're interested in is if you're putting less than 20% down and the taxes are around $5,000 roughly every $100,000 you borrow is going to equal about $500 a month in payment. And that was true. Um, la you know, that was pretty true last year, but interest rates are starting to go up. And, and interest rates are funny right now. January was uh, one of the most tumultuous uh, interest rate environments that we've seen in the last, call it, well, really since COVID. So March of 20, what is that, 2020? Yeah, 2020. That's when it all began. Yeah, so almost two years ago now. Um, and it's been, you know, borrowing power has changed. Uh, and that's the other thing, you know, with, with such quick and uh, in, in working with speed instead of having long-term discussions on, hey, you know, what, what are your plans with this home? Are you going to purchase this and then plan on, you know, maybe renting it someday? Or um, is this going to be somewhere you're going to live for a really long period of time? Um, are you going to live here for a short period of time? Are you a contract worker that's been known to move every couple of years? And um, there's just a variety of things that determine the best situation for each client individually. And, and I think that's kind of where, like, we, along with a lot of le uh, other lenders out there, pride ourselves on being able to uh, educate 
as much um, as much as possible and serve um, and serve clients, right? Like one of the things that we talk about often internally is like, are we pleasing people? Or are we serving people, right? Like, um, because as the lender, like, we don't always get to have the fun conversations, right? Because we we're having financial conversations and sometimes it's not always a, a yes. Oftentimes it's a yes, but sometimes it's a not yet or yeah, a, yeah like that's not going to work at this time for this reason. Um, and it's just super important to be able to have those conversations to set those expectations and what we feel, um, you know, I think it's good for everybody is, is having those conversations up front, you know, and that's, one of the things like it's an old Shakespeare quote that I always think about and is like expectation is the root of all heartache, right? And setting those expectations up front with clients and actually spending the time to have the interaction and do a, you know, a Q&A call and really dive into like what their goals are is something that sometimes we feel like is a little bit of a lost art in today's society because it's, I want this, I want this now, you figure out how to make that happen. And Oftentimes we do figure it out, but when we, when we run into that, like, holy cow, we need to do this right now. It doesn't feel as comfortable for the client always because they haven't had the proper time to digest, you know, what we're discussing, um, the, the best way to move forward. And, and quite frankly, right now, as you and I often talk about is such a hot market, so competitive that we're dealing in like max numbers too. Like to the point you made earlier, sometimes people come in and they're looking for hopefully a $400,000 pre-approval. And it ends up being 600. So I want to hear you talk a little bit about let's like what it what does it mean to go to your max, like debt to income ratio max. Explain a little bit about debt to income and how you're like when you're saying I want to purchase the absolute most expensive house that I possibly can. What does that mean? Boy, when you put it that way, it sounds terrifying. Uh, but but and, and it is in some ways. Um, and, and the the main ratios that we work in in our world are a debt to income ratio, which is the the amount of debt that you have, including your mortgage payment, um, installment loans, say student debt, car debt, revolving debt, which would be like credit cards. Um, it does not include uh, like your cell phone bill or your utilities or you know, a handful of other like consumer type bills that you would say, uh, but that debt to income ratio. A lot of millennials are ra just racked with student debt. How does their student debt play into their debt to income ratio? It's different product by product. So um, that's why it's so important to speak to somebody about that. Um, you know, in, and again, I, I would love to, we could probably dive into that in, a, in, a, in an episode at some point, but at a high level, ultimately we get the contract and determine what that is. A lot of student debt right now is in deferment um, because the government has allowed that, right? So it shows up on the credit report as yeah. no payment due, right? So in that case, there's some product out there that allows a half a percent of the total debt for a monthly payment, 1% uh, of the total debt for a payment. Um, so those are the, those are the calculations that we get to input in there. If it is truly deferred, that's a different thing. When, when I say truly deferred, like I've, we've come across ones that if you're, uh, attorneys sometimes where if they spend enough time in like, uh, and I don't know if this is the right 
verbiage, but like a district court, like if they're doing like almost like public service type of stuff that, that after they've been there a period of time, their student debt is forgiven. Same um, for so, nonprofit too. Right. And, and teachers we've run, we've come across that. Like if you went into education and you have a student debt and then that's forgiven at a certain point, if you've taught in the school district as part of your contract. So a, a lot of it is, is a case by case basis and understanding the actual, you know, the structure of it. Um, and then others is as simple as an installment loan, like, hey, you owe $50,000 in student debt and your payment is $537.52 a month and what's on the credit report, that's what we use. Um, sometimes we will ask for a contract if the numbers don't seem accurate. Like you have $150,000 in student debt and your payment's you know, $100.12 a month and it's like, whoa, like you're gonna be in student debt in perpetuity. In perpetuity. No, I mean the way, and like, so I'm in a similar situation where if I pay, I think I have to pay around $1,100 a month minimum to cover my interest. So if I'm just paying out $1,100 a month, I will owe my balance. Like I'll never pay off my principal. I'll right. just, I'll, I'll be in debt until I, it's like after 25 years, as long as you make every payment, then they re-give, then, then they forgive your debt. But depending on who is in charge of Congress and Senate at that time and the laws that are in place, the interest that has accrued might be forgiven and it might not and that might become whatever interest i haven't i have accrued might become my new debt and it becomes a new it starts over depending on who's in charge and that's the and that's kind of the thing that we we can only use the information that we have at that time right to make it the guidelines are really helpful um well not really helpful they are what they are so we just follow them. <laughs> um, they're they're helpful to provide advice um when it says like okay if if i don't have a payment do I have to have something counted? Depending on what loan product, but I would usually tell people like 1% of the balance is roughly what we would be looking at. That's a good number from uh, understanding like, how to calculate it and, and what we can do to um, help qualify when it's unclear out of the gate, if we don't have a contract, things of that nature. So, um, and again, that to kind of circle back like that, all of those things encompass a debt to income ratio and there's a max debt to income ratio. And that, that ratio is, is variable. And that's the hardest part about our job. And it depends on your credit score. Um, it depends on, it could depend on how many properties that you own. It can depend on if you're a first-time home buyer. It varies per product. Um, there's no like hard and fast, like if your back-end debt-to-income ratio is X, we can get you a loan. Um, and that's just, that's just not the case, which is what makes it very challenging because on a case-by-case -case basis, and if we're just speaking from a, um, a government service entity or GSE, um, your, your quasi-government agencies, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, uh, Jenny May. So these are the ones that house, you know, uh, conventional loans, your conforming loans, your FHA loans, your VA loans. Um, and those have automated underwriting engines and they're algorithms that are built and they're super smart. And um, they determine what we would call eligibility for running through an automated underwriting engine. Uh, to determine what that debt ratio, does somebody qualify, why maybe somebody doesn't qualify for as much as maybe another person. And those algorithms are, you know, take credit into consideration. Um, 
uh, residual income, meaning like if you're a really high income earner, but you're buying more, that means you have more left over at the end of the month. Um, so there's a, just a, a slew of different things that they kind of determine that. And that's why it's so important. Like you can trigger those through online systems that says, Hey, based on what you input, this looks good, but it doesn't account necessarily for what was input. And is it accurate? Right. I can't tell you the number of times that like we get somebody that applies and they put in their hourly rate at 40 hours a week and we look at their pay stubs and it's like, well, in the last year or two, you've averaged 36 hours a week, not 40. And when an underwriter, a live person gets a hold of that, they're going to do all of this irrelevant of the decision engine that was run automatically and say, Hey, that total income does not add up to what was put on the application. And when that happens, it changes your debt to income ratio and then changes your qualifications. So do you typically find out about that before they've written an offer? or halfway through the appraisal, pro- halfway through escrow? So we pride ourselves on finding that out before. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, but does an underwriter usually look at a file before an offer's out? No, that is not common. And anybody who says that that's common is working at a place that has a different structure than I would say most, most people. Mo- most mortgage companies or people are having their loan officers their processors, their loan managers, their pre-underwriters, however you want to call these people, they're looking at it and through their experience and their, you know, their background, they're saying, Hey, this looks good based on this, this, and this. So we're going to issue a pre-approval, but most of those pre-approval letters are going to come out with a, a, something on there that says, you know, pending a full loan application approval by an underwriter and all conditions being met. There are times though, I will tell you when, when it does get sticky, which what we call a TBD or a to be determined is we'll have the conversation. And I think you and I have probably had that before is like, I really want to get eyes on this with an underwriter because this could be a coin flip on how I'm looking at that, at, at the income. And to give you a max pre-approval, we need an income calculation from an underwriter that says, Hey, we are good with this. And then we can back into what that max pre-approval is. Because I would tell you like the big reasons for a max pre-approval are are two, debt to income ratio and assets for down payment and closing costs. Because those those are specific finite numbers that like you have X amount of assets for closing costs and prepaids or you don't. And you have X in income to meet the qualifications to carry a certain property or you don't. So here's another question I have for you taking all that information into account is if my student loan is on deferment right now and I'm looking to buy a house and my normal income driven repayment plan is let's just say $500 a month, but right now it's zero. And for whatever reason, if it's calculated into my algorithm that my payment is zero and that's the number they go with, that's going to mean I qualify for a bigger house. What I want to help people avoid doing is making irrational decisions that put them underwater. And with the appreciation we're seeing in Portland, on average, houses are going up about 10% value year over year. Um, so the risk is low as long as you can make the payment. But if I buy, a, if normally I'm having to pay $500 for my student loans and then I buy a house, and then at some point I have to start making that student loan payment back, then what do I do? It's a great question. Um, and that's, that's where uh, the guidelines kind of determine uh, some, some leniency because those debt to income ratios never allow us to use 
you know, it's not a hundred percent, I guess is a good way to say it. So they, they account for the fact that people are going to, you know, they understand that life comes up, things are going to happen. You need to have some, what we refer to as residual income or discretionary income, maybe a better word to be able to support those types of things. But we are not going to use zero on those student loans. We're going to take 1% of the balance more often than not, even if it just so shows that it's in deferment for that exact reason. Like we know that something's going to happen with that student loan at some point and everything that is at is a zero now is, is typically not calculated at a zero when we're qualifying people. But it does bring up a good point because when you submit an application online from like say an online lender and it spits out your approval, and I can't speak to the technology. Maybe they do already have the technology that says, oh, this was a student debt. We're going to calculate it at this. And that's what it's going to be. My guess is it pulls the credit in and says, hey, here's what the payments are. Here's what the, you know, your debt to income ratio is based on what you put on the application for your income and then qualifies you at that, which is it's a, it's a dangerous little game because I would say a lot of times it works, but it's a dangerous little game in the way that they people don't really understand their income, right? And, you know, I will use you as an example of somebody has a really good handle on their income, but you're self-employed. So how we calculate it as a, uh, as a mortgage bank and how you may look at your income if you're filling out an application and says, Steve, how much money do you make? You write that down. But- $564,000 a month. Right. So, like, and, and is that because you had a huge month and that's what it says, oh, that's what I made last month. That's what I'm putting on this application. But we're also, as a self-employed borrower, we're going to look at you over a two-year history and we're going to average that. And if yeah. you smoked it in 2021 and you didn't in 2020, right, those numbers are going to get averaged. So maybe on the application you put, I made $547,000 a month in 2021 it was a good year yeah, i need to, i need to quit mortgage banking immediately and go into real estate um and and then the, the difference there is okay now we have to be the ones to say okay hey wait steve like i appreciate that you smoked it in 2021 but 2020 not so much and we got to look at this as could that have been an anomaly year again have you been in business for more than five years because in a five years sometimes we can just use one year of tax returns right but then I do think that, that that warrants a question of now Steve can buy a $20 million home. And was that an anomaly year? Do you want a $20 million home? Can you afford this going forward? Which I think are all fair questions. Like just as people, we should ask each other rather than say, hey, you qualify for this. Go get them, Steve. Maybe have a conversation of like, do you expect to do that year over year? Is that something that's sustainable for you to be able to support that? You know, do you want this McMansion? And then understanding like, well, that was great, but that was your gross number as a self-employed borrower. Now we can use gross income for a W-2 borrower, but we're not using your top line gross revenue as a business owner because you have a whole bunch of things that are written off in there, yeah. right? And you have the control over a lot of those write-offs that we have to account for to then give you a much more accurate, you know, income calculation. And then in your, you know, in your in the world of making that kind of money, you might have a couple investment properties, you could have a couple business ventures, you could have trust income, you could have royalties, 
that's the thing why it's so important to, you know, talk to people, meet with them, you know, mostly over Zoom nowadays, um, and, and or have a real clear phone call of, of, of an understanding of what all this looks like. Now, not everybody's self-employed. Um, some people are very down the fairway with their income, you know, their base salary, their hourly, they do work 40 hours a week. Uh, there's no commission, there's no bonuses. But in the world that we live in today, now more than ever before, most people's compensation is a little bit more complex. It's competitive war for talent out there right now. Uh, we have the great resignation, as people have called it. So people are moving. We, let, we have to see a two-year job history, period, end of story. So when, you, when you're looking at that, well, I guess I shouldn't say period, end of story. Like if you were coming out of school, we might need transcripts to show that what you graduated from, you're now in the field of and, yeah. and that sort of thing. So there's, there's a few exceptions to that, but by and large, we're gonna need two years of job history. And you, know, you could be going from a job that had you at a base salary of X, and now you went to a job that has you a base salary lower, but you have commission and bonus potential that far exceeds what that is. But unless you've had a two-year history of your bonus, we're not going to be able to use that income. So like, that's the things that people need to be mindful of when they're talking about a max qualification. We need a full picture to be able to safely say, like, hey, yeah, you can go out and shop for that $650,000 home. But on the flip side, we also need to have a conversation. And how many times do you and I have conversations about, like, what are the taxes on that property? Yeah. Where's the homeowner's insurance? Like because those are, those are variables. People have to pick their own homeowner's insurance, right? And real estate taxes in Portland, sometimes I feel like I'm throwing a dart at a dartboard. Just the other day, somebody sent me a listing and just before I got to the taxes, I looked at the house and I was like, oh, that's gonna be around 6,000. It was $2,400. And then other times where I see houses that I'm like, oh, that'll be around four and it's $6,300. On average, it's about 1%. I'm so glad you said that number, by the way. Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> because that's what we use to estimate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's around there, but you know, there's certain neighborhoods that just have lower taxes for whatever reason. Like, you know, I haven't gone down to the city and been like, why is this neighborhood cheaper than this other neighborhood? And some are more than one percent. Totally. And I've come across that, and we qualify somebody at one percent, and then they send over a property, right? Or you send me a property, and you're like, hey, check this out, and I'm like. Ooh, those taxes are ugly. Um, so now all of a sudden their max on that property may be lower than what can be offered to be competitive in the market. And that's super disappointing, but it's a lot better to know that than to just go ahead and have you go through the exercise of writing that offer, have the client go through the exercise of getting their hopes up. And then what if their offer gets accepted? Right. And then we're in a situation where it's like, you can't buy this house. Yeah. You, well, you and I are really good about making sure that doesn't happen before because I'm not going to write an offer unless I have more and more often right now. The conversation is what's their max? Like we need to go there because that's what they want. And you know, like beyond the consult you're giving them and the conversations I'm having with them, giving them all the information that I can possibly give them so that they fully understand what they're doing because I'm not here to tell people what they can and can't do. That's my job. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, e but even like, for instance, somebody may find out they're going to their absolute max on the debt to income for a house that's 725. And it might be my opinion that this is not a good life decision, but that's not my decision to make. My decision, like I'm here to offer consultation and help people make good decisions. I've been doing this for about eight years now. I've maybe once had somebody call me up two years later and say, I made a mistake. I want to sell this house. And that was a situation where it was a, 
a guy who moved up from California and ultimately just decided Oregon wasn't for him. And that's what I really want to do is make sure people aren't making mistakes. But with the market where it's at and prices where they're at and all things considered, the conversation more and more between myself and my clients and especially my younger clients is what's my max and they're going there it makes me uncomfortable not in terms of the market because i think the market's going to be strong for a long time unless we have an absolute american civilization fails type of situation like i'm not worried about 2008 happening again that it all comes down to supply and demand which we've talked about before and i don't necessarily want to go into again right now i'm having really uncomfortable conversations with all my clients and i'm having those conversations so that they understand what they're getting into and it hasn't really discouraged anyone from jumping into cars and going and looking at houses but in the end that's kind of it's just where we're at next episode we I am gonna pretend to be a buyer that wants to spread myself thin and Pat's gonna make up some numbers and I'm just gonna pretend like his numbers are correct and um, say yes and to every one of his numbers that he gives me but yeah we're gonna give myself uh, I'm basically gonna be a buyer with sort of an average income which we'll get into All right, well that wraps up this episode. Thank you so, so much for sticking with us all the way to the end. I do wanna take a second to send out a huge thank you to Debs Baird for her skills behind the editing board and to Ezel, AKA Ethan Zirin Brown for his musical wizardry. Please do take a minute to rate and review and let us know if there's anything you'd like us to cover in future episodes. It really does help. You wanna say anything, Pat? No. Perfect. Thank you so much, and we'll see you on the next episode. And when I say see you, I mean you'll hear us, because we can't see you.